Hi everyone, this is Kim, your co-host here at Beyond Prisons. I'd like to say a big thank you to everyone that's been listening to the podcast and downloading the show. We really appreciate the support that we get from folks in terms of, you know, sending us email and letting us know what the show means to them and what it's doing for them. That said, I'd like to encourage those of you that are listening to support us by going to our Patreon page and donating as little as a dollar. That's $12 a year to basically help bring you the kind of storytelling, the kind of program that Brian and I have been busy doing over the last few years. And frankly, this is the work that we want to continue to do. We want to spend most of our time doing this work and we need you to come through for us. We're a very small, scrappy operation. In order for us to keep the podcast sustainable, we are asking for your help and we need you to go to our patreon page again and donate even if all you can give is one dollar a month that's really all we're asking for there's a lot that we want to do with this podcast and we we do need your help again thank you for listening we appreciate each and every single one of you and we'll talk to you soon Hey everyone, I'm your host Brian Sonnenstein and thank you for listening to another episode of Beyond Prisons. I'm super excited to bring you this episode with Rachel Herzing today. Rachel is the co-director of the Center for Political Education, a resource for political organizations on the left, progressive social movements, and working class and people of color. Rachel has been an organizer, activist, and advocate fighting the violence of policing and imprisonment for over 20 years. She's a co-founder of Critical Resistance, a national grassroots organization dedicated to abolishing the prison industrial complex, and she was also the director of research and training at Creative Interventions, a community resource developing interventions to interpersonal harm that do not rely on policing, imprisonment, or traditional social services. Kim and I have a wide-ranging conversation with Rachel on abolition, transformative justice, storytelling, and a whole lot more. But before we get to that, I just wanted to remind folks to please rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you listen to it. Tell everyone you know about us, and make sure that you're following us on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, we are 100% supported by our listeners. So, like Kim said before, please join us, even if it's just for a dollar, at patreon.com slash beyondprisons. All right, on with the show. Here's our chat with Rachel Herzing. I hope you enjoy. I'd like you to start off by talking a little bit about the work that you do with the Center for Political Education, uh, as well as your previous work with uh, Creative Interventions. Okay. Um, so I am currently the co-director of an organization called the Center for Political Education, and that is an organization based in the San Francisco Bay Area that is um, a tool for movement organizations on the left, for working class, people of color organizations that helps to fortify the work that those organizations do by helping provide uh, training, resources, political education about movement history to help sharpen organizations' analysis and strategy, and just to put them in better fighting form to win more of the things that get more of us free. So that's what that organization is. 
Um, before that, I worked in a couple different places, but one of those was with an organization called Creative Interventions, which was founded by Mimi Kim. And I was the director of research and training there. And we helped. Um, that was a, a resource for communities, community members who were interested in intervening in situations of interpersonal and state violence without relying on imprisonment, policing, surveillance, or traditional social services. And so we did a few things there, one of which was to develop um, a toolkit or, you know, a kind of provisional model to help support community-based interventions to violence. Um, that's available on Creative Interventions website, which is just creative-interventions.org. Um, and then there was another project spun off from that organization called the Storytelling and Organizing Project, or STOP, which I also worked on, which collected stories of the things that people are doing all day, every day, to intervene in situations of harm. And um, that project, I think, is really remarkable because I think we get convinced out of the idea that intervening is useful or that we're able to do it, that it shouldn't be led to, left to law enforcement or shouldn't mm -hmm. be left to social work professionals or whatever. But truthfully, most people um, who are not directly benefiting from the fact of law enforcement don't use it and try to avoid it. So there are many, many stories of people who are like, oh, the cops would be my last choice to, to select. So here's what we did instead. Or I tried to call the cops and then this really bad thing happened and the violence didn't stop, so we had to mm -hmm. do this other thing instead. And those stories, a sample of those stories are available to listen to and read transcripts of on that website. And that is called stopviolenceeveryday.org. Yeah, that, thank you for that. I, I was wondering, actually, if you could talk a little bit more about STOP. Um, and in, in particular, I wanted to hear uh, if you could talk about the power of storytelling in this particular organizing space where people are trying to imagine ways to deal with harm that may seem almost alien to them living in a society that is like as wedded to carceral logics as our own. Mm hmm yeah, I think that, you know, I saw two things come out of that project that were really amazing. And one was just the kind of common sense nature of the kinds of things that people do so that we get a sense sometimes that if we want to try something that's different from calling 911 or getting a restraining order, that it's going to be super elaborate and a years-long process. And it might be. There are some, you know, methods and some situations that require long-term intervention and a lot of uh, labor. And then there are some that are a little bit more straightforward or can be disruptive of a cycle of violence that can kind of shift the terrain. So that's one thing is that there are a lot more kind of practical, common sense things that people do than sometimes we're led to believe. And the other is that the fact of sharing stories reminding um, ourselves that we're not alone in these situations is also really important. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that frequently happens to people who are experiencing violence is that you start to feel really isolated. And sometimes people who are doing harm to you, that's their goal too, right, is to isolate you. And you can feel very alone with it. You can be ashamed of it. You can feel, you know, as if 
you you got to figure your own way out of it. And I think sharing these stories reminds you that you're a part of a broader community of people who's, one, experiencing some of the same things you are, but two, is also figuring out ways to work together to try to remedy situations, prevent harm in the future, or get out of potentially dangerous situations. I'm thinking of a number of different things right now, but uh, the direction I'd like to go in um, for the moment is, you know, going back to stop and uh, to creative interventions. One of the things that I've heard you say um, a number of times is that these organizations were built with a planned obsolescence, right? Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that that's a really important concept uh, to discuss particularly on this podcast, because we've talked about, um, you know, a lot of nonprofit organizations and um, other groups, you know, the goal is really to just perpetuate their own existence, but to have, you know, um, a limited time on the organization, because the goal is not to just continue this thing. I mean, the goal is, you know, to keep going. Um, And I was wondering if you had, you know, something to say around that notion uh, to help us understand that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I I like the idea of it and the idea, you know, that Mimi put out to us working with her was that, you know, we didn't want to create another social service that people were going to have to rely on. The idea really was, can we make, can we push ourselves to make tools that people in the community could take up on their own, use in their own ways um, and develop those skills that, uh, knowledge and that confidence on their own to be able to kind of do more and more work that didn't rely on on these kind of institutions. So I like that concept. I'm not sure that we got the timing exactly right for uh, for stop and for creative interventions. I think maybe we were um, it, it would have been good for us to stick around a little bit longer and let those tools take hold a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, who who knows? You know, in hindsight, it looks very different. And, you know, mm-hmm. Mimi still does training with a lot of people on the model. And so it's not as if, you know, that the kind of support that creative interventions offered to people is completely absent now. You know, she does mm-hmm. lots and lots of work helping people use those tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but the kind of necessity to run an organization in that way to pay people to have space, all of that, um, you know, is is no longer there. And so that the tools can be more flexibly used, can be offered to people in a whole different kind of set of circumstances. And so I think in that way, it's good, you know, to not have to kind of think about maintaining an institution and really be able to focus on like, how can we get tools to people? How can we get people trained up to use them? And to, you know, really get confident in thinking about how to do these interventions in a good principled way. Yeah. And shout out to Mimi. Uh, I met Mimi uh, last year uh, through our uh, a transformative justice group uh, that I'm a part of here in LA. Uh, and she um, had been part of that group um, mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, and yeah, she's does amazing work. And, you know, Brian and I have talked about the, um, the CI toolkit. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think we actually published the episode yet, um, but we have uh, it, we spent quite a bit of time um, 
thinking about it and and going through it. So um, that'll be forthcoming. Um, Brian, do you have a question? Well, yeah, you know, just thinking about, you know, mentioning that toolkit, um, and we don't necessarily have to, to go into a whole conversation about it. But, you know, I was thinking about what you were saying about storytelling and thinking about the toolkit. And one of the things that struck me, um, you know, in particular, uh, some of the vignettes that were included in the toolkit, um, you know, sort of convey this idea that, you know, we have in our heads this idea that intervening in violence uh, necessarily has to be sort of um, a, a very large, complicated thing when I feel like the impression that I got was that there are small and immediate things that we can do to intervene in violence in the short term uh, on like a path to a, a broader intervention. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, maybe if you wanted to talk about um, at all, like some of the forms of intervention and violence and, and sort of make it clearer what uh, kinds of things we're talking about when we're talking about intervening. Mm -hmm. And I want, I want to be clear. I'm not trying to suggest that like every situation of, of violence can be, you know, remedied with some quick fix. I'm not trying to suggest that at all. I think of course. the way that you describe it is, is excellent, you know, that it's, there are steps that you can take to mitigate harm that might lead to kind of a broader goal of transforming behavior, transforming an environment. Um, but some of the things that, you know, people tried were to um, have people in their home, right? So uh, to invite people into their home, to be with them, to be with their kids, to help um, provide a different layer of interaction between people in a situation that might be violent inside of their home. Um, there were people who uh, intervened in uh, violence on the street by talking to, you know, local shops or business owners about kind of what they could do to transform the environment, make the environment more welcoming to people who um, were survivors of violence and to create safe spaces on the street. There are people who, um, you know, helped uh, intervene in a situation of financial abuse by taking a car out of commission that was mm -hmm. being used to kind of withhold somebody's ability to move around in the world. So there are little things like that, you know, and then there are also much more elaborate things that happen to like, you know, there are some, one story I can think of in particular where, um, you know, it's years of time where a variety of different interventions were tried, both criminal legal and community-based, um, and it took a lot of time. And, um, you know, so some of the things are much more elaborate. And then I know that there are, um, you know, practitioners like Shira Hassan and Maryam Kaba who do, you know, kind of different um, practices that are more, um, structured and formal practices that they're teaching people around intervention. And so I don't want to suggest that those aren't as helpful either. I think they are. But I guess what I am suggesting is that, you know, if we're interested in um, intervening in situations of harm, and those can be, you know, kind of um, less lethal all the way to very lethal or, or, you know, ongoing for many years, 
that we have to try something. I think there's this mm-hmm. idea of, you know, the concept of prison industrial complex abolition starts to get a little bit more popular. There's this idea that, like, we can just sit back and wait for some happy day when abolition, you know, takes hold and things transform without forcing that transformation ourselves. And I mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. I don't think that's possible. I think that's a fantasy. So. Yeah. For somebody to describe themselves as an abolitionist and then to say, well, when that happens, that's going to be great. But for the time being, you know, cops and prisons are a good solution, I think, you know, is that's what that's a fantasy because it will not happen unless people clear a path for some of the things that people are trying to take hold to gain some legitimacy, to have some space to actually get tested. Right. So it's Mm -hmm. like we get a grant cycle or we get a you know, a tiny, tiny window to try something out when, you know, the prison industrial complex is trying its stuff out on all of us all the time for decades and decades without remedying anything but only creating more harm and violence. So, you know, to my mind, that's like one of the things about these kind of smaller scale interventions is that, you know, they are attempts by people to transform their conditions. There are attempts by people to transform behavior, to transform environments. And I think we need to give them as much air as we can, as much legitimacy as we can to kind of aggregate, build up our competency, build up our skill, build up our confidence to do things differently that might lead us in a direction that is more like um, the abolition of the prison industrial complex. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, <laughs> There's a lot seriously. of stuff there that you know really needed to be said, and uh, I appreciate how you put that. Um, I'd like to pivot for a moment to uh, something else that I've you know spent that I spent a lot of time thinking about, um, and this goes back to you know my graduate school days um, when I was you know thinking through and using Du Bois to analyze um, the problem of reentry in communities right now mm-hmm. you know, if if i had to go back 20 years and pick a different subject um i would probably you know with everything i know <laughs> today, right with everything i've learned in the past 20 years and you know had the opportunity to refine my thinking um around abolition and uh what have you and obviously um and I don't know how much you know about my personal biography, but um, I talk about this on a show all the time and it's very public knowledge. I have uh, two adult sons that are currently sentenced to serve life in prison without the possibility of parole. So mm. things, you know, kind of coalesce around um, mm-hmm. you know, my, where I am with, uh, with this stuff, but that um, the, the reason I raised this is because something that, um, and I've studied your work, I've, you know, um, any, any video that you've put out, I've tried to, you know, pay attention to watch, take notes on, um, for a long time now. Uh, and so I've learned a lot from the work that you've been doing and I appreciate that. Um, but something I, you know, I, I feel that you really articulate very well is the, importance of theory and practice, right? So working at the intersection of theory and practice as an approach to Black liberation. Um, And I would love for you to say something about that. Yeah, I I 
feel incredibly strongly about that. And I see a lot of that these days working at the Center for Political Education, too, that there's a lot of urgency and there's a lot of interest in acting right now, today, you know, to kind of transform our conditions, right? People are, are under a lot of pressure. Some people are under really serious and legitimate threats to their ability to stay alive and well. Um, and so, again, not to minimize what the urgency is, but I see a lack of um, seriousness about really analyzing conditions, what creates mm -hmm. the environments that we're in, and uh, doing that in such a way that suggests to us strategies and tactics that actually get us further ahead than where we are, that shift power, that get us out from under, you know, some of the most um, damaging oppression that we're under right now. And, and I think without an analysis, without a knowledge of movement mm -hmm. history, without a clear analysis of kind of where we stand and where we could go, we just act. And it really is like a kind of a wheel spinning set of actions that we don't ultimately kind of change anything in our conditions without um, without thinking about where we're headed and why. Mm -hmm. um, what are the you know, what are the time, place, conditions that we're in right now? And what helps us act on those in ways that transform things? So, yeah, thank you for raising that because I think, you know, especially in a period coming off of um, mass protest as kind of the primary means for articulating any grievance and suggesting any change. Yeah. Um, and I, I think mass protest is a, is a wonderful tactic but I don't think it's a strategy and yeah. I don't think it's an end game, you know, so without having a sense of where to use that tactic effectively, when to escalate, when to kind of push further, um, you know, then we wind up turning a lot of people out into the streets with no kind of, you know, result. And I know that that really is demoralizing to me. It's like, oh, well, we're going to mobilize again. And then yeah. I go home and everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I found that super, super frustrating um, in a lot of, you know, movement spaces and organizations um, where there's, you know, <laughs> um, that knee jerk response is, well, we have to, you know, we have to do X, you know, and X can mm -hmm. be whatever form of, I think, um, there's a heavy emphasis on the the visual aspect of it so that mm -hmm. it looks mm -hmm. like something is actually happening without there being, you know, any, and I'm not going to say any, because that sounds really dismissive of, of what a lot of people are doing. People are doing a tremendous amount of work, but there's, how do I phrase this? They devalue theory and thinking and see thinking through the problem historically, culturally, what have you, as not being work. Who <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> spends a lot of time <laughs> thinking through things. I'm like, this is a lot of work. This yeah. Is <laughs> This is the kind of work, I mean, Angela Davis, you know, talked about this in Our Prisons Obsolete and many other places, but, you know, it's like the thinking through is work, you know, and it's, mm -hmm. um, it, it's the kind of heavy lifting uh, that doesn't get you photo ops, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. 
yeah, so there's a there's a frustration obviously there. So I appreciate mm -hmm. um, you saying that um, and and bringing that up. Um, yeah, and it's not extra, right? It's, it's not, not like yeah. it's not what you do until you get to do the work, right? Exactly. It, you know, it, it needs to be part of how you do the work. Exactly. And I think, you know, additionally, one of the things that I find a little bit frustrating is that sometimes there's, you know, the idea put out that that, that kind of work, that, you know, that um, intellectual work mm -hmm. is not for the so-called people, right? Oh, yeah. It's like, okay, well, some of the most, you know, um, smart intellectual people I know about kind of movement theory or what's useful, um, you know, are people who live in cages right now. Yeah. Or uh, totally. if you look globally, you know, it's, it's an embarrassment how little our people know about theory, about movement history compared to people all over the world. And I'm mm -hmm. talking like peasants and workers and people yep. without formal education. But that gets, you know, denigrated here frequently by people with lots and lots of education, right? They're like, mm -hmm. well, people can't understand that. And it's like, well, globally, and for many, many years, people do understand that. So not only I do think, they understand you know, it, but it's, I think it's um, struggling to understand that, that is part of the work. Mm -hmm. And this is how, yeah. you know, from, and I've learned this from incarcerated people um, specifically, is that, you know, there are people inside um, that may not know how to read, right? But if you're in in prison for 25, 30 years, you teach that other person how to read or you learn how learned how to read from someone on the inside and you develop a sort of political consciousness because, you know, that's the thing that you needed to do, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's, I, I, mm -hmm. I get my back and up. And people do that in all kind of, conditions right so that people Absolutely. do that in cages yeah. people you know the people that the revolutionaries that a lot of people in our our movements want to elevate now and romanticize people did that in jungles or people did mm -hmm. that in you know in the countryside so it's not as if you know there aren't plenty of people historically who have figured out Karl Marx or somebody else exactly. right who can like really help advance their practice um, mm -hmm. But the idea, you know, in some of our movements today that that's like extra or not relevant because it's old or European or whatever, I think mm -hmm. it doesn't take seriously enough kind of global history of movements. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, it's, as someone who, you know, spent a lot of time talking about Du Bois and, and writing about Du Bois, um, obviously, you know, get dismissed with, you mm -hmm. know, that's that talented 10th bullshit. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, mm -hmm. okay, well, you know, if you actually studied Du Bois, you would understand that he refines his thinking around this and comes back and says, well, maybe I got this, you know, that's not quite how I needed to say that, right? But again, it's mm -hmm. it's this um, tendency to be very dismissive and to see some as elitist or what have you. And I'm like, well, what does it say when we look at folks who haven't had that exposure or haven't had the privilege of quote unquote formal education, because I don't think you need a formal education to understand Du Bois or Marx or, you know, anyone. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. Cabral, right? Exactly. Like you get can, elevated. 
yeah. put people in, you know, in your living room or dining table or mm -hmm. backyard or what have you and, you know, or online and, um, and figure this stuff out. So I think that that's, you know, part of, um, part of this conversation as well. Um, something else, and I think that this also is, um, part of this conversation here is, uh, the notion of visionary politics and something else that I've heard you, um, you know, uh, use that phrase. And I think that, you know, having a visionary politics is really important, right? So when I think about it, I talk about it in the context of, you know, abolishing the prison industrial complex. And, you know, there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, but I'd like to hear how you describe it. Yeah. Um... You know, for me, I think I've um, I've been asked to talk about that a lot. I don't know that that's like language that would come naturally to me. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I understand. I understand. I think what people are getting at when they when they do talk about it. Uh, and I think for me, I'm much more um, prone probably to talk about kind of long term politics mm -hmm. like what does it take for us to to win our liberation and keep it in the long term and how are we mm -hmm. thinking you know pretty far into the future about things that we want not just what we are told we can get right yeah. so I think that's probably what I mean you know by that is what are we actually trying to get what do we think um, is the kind of life or environment or um, conditions that we want to live in that we think give us the most freedom and the most self-determination how are we going to get there and you know what steps are we going to take along the way that give us the greatest chance of having the most of that but like putting our sights out to the what what is what we want rather than the kind of like tweaks that we think are you know supposedly pragmatic or realistic in the here and now even though we need to be able to to take real action and real steps today mm -hmm. that lead us in that direction, right? So I'm not, again, you know, this is my little hobby horse right now because I'm feeling <laughs> mad about it. But, you know, <laughs> this doesn't happen unless we make it happen, right? Yeah. There is there is no happy day in the future that we don't create. Exactly. You know, we, we are the ones, mm -hmm. as, as everybody says, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, to... Um, to have a vision, to have a horizon that you are moving in the direction of, I think is crucial. And I think it has to be a, a fairly vast horizon and I think it has to be fairly far in the future because I don't know that we are seeing anything um, in the kind of immediate that opens up enough of the kind of opportunities and conditions for freedom and self-determination that give people a good chance uh, of living, you know, dignified, thriving lives. So right. I think we're looking at a kind of a, a broader horizon and a, and a deeper horizon in some ways. Yeah. But I do think we need to be thoughtful about the steps that we take to, to build towards that horizon, the path towards that horizon, right? So, and we can't say if the thing didn't work today or the thing hasn't worked already, that it's useless. I think that's just like also ridiculous. So it's mm -hmm. like, 
you know, we keep trying, we keep building. You don't just say the first attempt to abolish slavery was useless because mm-hmm. it didn't, you know, achieve um, liberation for all enslaved people. You say that was a good first attempt and let's create more space and more mm-hmm. legitimacy for those attempts, right? Um, but yeah, I think that's that's really what, what when I think about a visionary politics, that's what I think about. And I think about, like, you know, we have to at some level, again, do that thinking work of what what are we actually angling toward, and that requires us to be thoughtful, and that requires us to have a sense of, you know, um, philosophy, right, as mm-hmm. well as history. Mm-hmm. And then we have to get to the work of, you know, creating as many of the conditions that are necessary for that future as possible. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, just thinking on that a little bit, I, you know, you mentioned self-determination, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and how you, you know, how you see it as central to Black liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that we need to be able to have say over our own affairs right we need and you know i don't necessarily think that needs to be separate from anybody else and i don't think that means that you know we need to have more autonomy than anybody else but i think it does mean we need to have a say over our own affairs we need to be able to you know interact with institutions and economies and each other in in ways that we get to set the terms of or at least have a major say in setting the terms of um and I think that is non-negotiable for our liberation, and I think mm-hmm. that that needs to be fundamental to whatever we we build for ourselves. I'm not sure yep. if that's what you were asking me. No, that's, no, that's, no yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think uh, I don't know about Brian. He's you know <laughs> we're not in the same room, so it's, <laughs> he's important in LA right now. But I'm like I was just reflecting on that and I'm like okay mic drop I just envision you like dropping the mic and that's it it's like I've just been nodding I've just been nodding through this whole conversation going yep yep yep." exactly exactly um so something else that you know comes up uh quite a bit and we're we hear a lot of people talking about this um lately right like it's become you know almost a fad um is to talk about accountability Right. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I feel like a lot of what, I have to take a deep breath. A lot of what is being described as accountability or used as examples of holding people accountable um, isn't really contributing to our liberation. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, I know you have thoughts on this because <laughs> I've mm-hmm. been a good student, um, <laughs> but I was wondering if you would share, you know, your thoughts on um, what what you mean by accountability and how that contributes to our liberation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's, I have very similar thoughts about this as the stuff I was describing being mad about earlier around mm-hmm. abolition, which is... <laughs> You know, it's like accountability isn't necessarily the same as vengeance, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's this idea that people don't get, you know, the utmost punishment that that no accountability has been um, achieved. 
Um, and I also know that I think accountability is like this weird nebulous thing that gets manipulated and used in a million ways. And I also know that it's really, really difficult to hold people accountable, including my own self, right? Like mm -hmm. we, we like to wriggle out of that stuff. We, if we do something bad, we don't want to be called on it. We don't want to be held to account. And it's, it's challenging to do that. It's challenging to do that in a way that respects people's dignity and their integrity um, and also gets them to take responsibility for what they've done, right? So um, I don't know. My brain's going a million different places on this question. I think one of the things is that we need some clarity around what we would, what we really want Right, and one of the things I appreciate about the creative interventions model is that it's a lot like an organizing model in some ways, right? So it mm -hmm. asks people to be clear, like, what is it that you want from somebody? Mm -hmm. So somebody else has harmed you. Do you want them living in a cage? Do you want them to say they were sorry? Do you want them to change their behavior? Do you want them to articulate what they're going to do in the future so that nobody else is harmed? You know. But the, but the goal of trying to engage somebody really does determine how you go about engaging them. Um, and that, to my mind, there also has to be some end, right? There has to be a, a goal that you can actually achieve. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't, then there's no way to determine whether or not somebody's been accountable enough. Somebody can then be punished for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. um, through a you know even something that would be set up as an accountability process because it's like mm -hmm. if there's no if there's no end game then you know then sometimes that can get manipulated to be like oh well you can just never be anywhere again ever mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, or you know oh this is also now we're going to add this on this is also part of you being accountable right mm -hmm. whereas um, you know if you're clear about what actually you would understand as repair or as restitution or as resolution, then, you know, as the person who's seeking that, you know, you actually can get a measure of that. You can say, you know, this person was able to do this or not, or this group of people or whomever. And then people can help you try to get that. And then the person who's done the harm can be held to account around a, a set of things. And easier said than done, all of this stuff. So I'm Absolutely. not trying to be like, this is really simple, you know, but <laughs> I think that there are things that can make it more simple than less simple and, and setting clear goals is one of those things and having help to really, you know, fantasize about the full range of things that you would want, right? So I mean, mm -hmm. like, initially, if you ask somebody, what do you want? They might want somebody dead. And I think we have to be able to hold that as, mm -hmm. you know, what as as one of the many things that they might want and then i think we also have to walk people through like okay what are the impacts of you getting what you want mm -hmm. right and most of the time when we when we talk about that people are like well i actually don't want that person dead or i don't i can't live with the impacts of that or whatever the case might be and you know as a survivor myself i know that you know frequently people want some acknowledgement that harm has been done some apology for the harm, and some indication that harm's not going to keep happening. Right? Mm -hmm. Do you want like how are you going to how are you going to change your behavior? 
right? How is your behavior going to change? And how can we have people around you keeping track of whether or not your behavior is changing and whether or not you're putting any real effort into changing your behavior? Yeah. Because it strikes me at the end of the day, that's really what we're trying to get. We're trying to get people to not be harmful anymore. Mm -hmm. We're not necessarily trying to, you know, control their movement forevermore or control Mm -hmm. what they get to do in the world forevermore. We really, to my mind, like if somebody can change their behavior, can transform their behavior, can not do harm, they they should get to live a life, right? (laughs) I don't, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't believe that people, you know, should be exiled forever or banished forever or whatever. You know, they, they get to live a life. And we want to see them put good faith effort into correcting the harms that they've done to whatever extent is possible and to transforming their behavior. And Mm -hmm. I think, you know, I'm not somebody who believes that, you know, prison industrial complex means that abolition means that people don't get, that there are no consequences for what you do, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if you do serious harm, maybe you don't get to, work at the thing that you love doing that, you know, gives you your income. Or maybe you don't get access to the same kinds of benefits that you got in the you know, in your previous setup. Or maybe you somebody is checking in on you on a regular basis to say, how is this transformation going? So, you know, I'm not somebody who who is like I think that's another kind of this misrepresentation of what, you know, aiming for a world without imprisonment, police, and surveillance means is that there are no consequences for mm-hmm. anything, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. and I don't think that's true. I just don't think that living in a cage is a is a adequate or, or appropriate response really for anything. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it doesn't it doesn't lead to transformation. Uh, there's no yeah. yeah, there's no miracle that happens when someone is put in isolation for decades on end um, without access to books, to other human beings, uh, to anything really. Um, And, you know, it's, and then they get out, right? So (laughs) they get out to what? I mean, a completely Mm -hmm. different human Mm -hmm. being to me is not accountability, right? Um, Yeah. But there's no, you know, there's no help to transform yourself. Like we don't just transform organically or because somebody, I mean, you know, we do transform all the time organically, right? Mm -hmm. Like we age for instance. (laughs) But, but, um, you know, we don't change our behavior necessarily, especially if it's behavior we've been rewarded with, rewarded for at some level, right? Whether that's like machismo or that's like, you know, being able to be dominant or whatever. We don't transform that behavior normally without some help to do that or some push to do that. And mm-hmm. and transformation is hard. It takes time. It takes a lot of work. And it takes a lot of support. Mm-hmm. And so I think we also have this idea that, you know, well, somebody should just be accountable and I'm going to, you know, write a statement or a manifesto or I'm going to tell my friends or I'm going to put up a poster saying this person's fucked up or I'm going to, you know, call them out on social media, and then they're just going to have to transform. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, that that's the part of the thing that's similar to what I was saying was making me mad before. It's just like, why do we think that any of this is magical? Yeah. You know, like, the prison industrial complex is not magical. And yeah. our remedies 
to harm that we that don't rely on that can't be magical either. They mm-hmm. take human labor, right. and we need to be willing to put the human labor into making them possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. the thing that I was thinking of. I'm sorry, Brian. Um, no, no, go. The the thing that you made me think of um, there is something that I say um, as well in workshops and other spaces when we're talking about accountability is, um, you know, proximity, proximity matters, like holding people close um, is important uh, because if you're just put in a cage, exiled, you know, banished from the community, um, that doesn't really bode well or lay the groundwork for developing the kind of transformative, you know, transformation or practices that we need to have happen um, coming from that person. Because it's like, you don't do this in isolation. You don't do this by yourself. This has to happen um, or needs to happen, doesn't have to happen, Um, needs to happen in community. as far as I'm concerned, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously that's up for debate. But yeah, I, I just I find the, you know, and it doesn't mean that, okay, well, you've done harm and you've shown repeatedly that you're not adhering to, you know, the needs of the folks that, you know, you're around who've said we need you to please stop this or that there's been a process in place or what have you. Um you may need to you know, not be in that space for a while, um, mm-hmm. you know, but I think like you, you pointed it out, there has to be a time limit that, you know, this whole lock them up and throw away the key um, <laughs> forever uh, really is, it, it it's not helpful. Uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. lead to, you know, it's not liberatory, um, it's not revolutionary, uh, it's not transformative in any way. Um, but yeah, I'll shut up. Brian, you had a question, so I'll let you no, go. No, yeah, <laughs> I think that was great. Um, no, I, I have one more question. I know we only have three minutes left, so, you know, if you don't feel like you have enough time to answer it, that's totally fine. But, um, you know, I was just thinking back on this entire conversation, talking about uh, the urgent need to transform conditions, the need to have analysis, you know, what you were just saying about magical thinking. And, um, you know, in pre- in pre- sorry, in preparing for this interview, um, you know, I came, Kim shared with me an interview or a roundtable that you did where you were talking about um, more or less the need not to see like passing laws as uh, a panacea, but more as like one tool for transformation and that there's more we need to do, including on like the cultural side of things to achieve some of these ends of accountability and winning liberation and keeping it. Um, and I think and the and keeping it part is an incredibly important part of what you said. And I was just wondering if you can talk about sort of um, the need to have like a holistic view that doesn't sort of approach abolition um, by saying like, we just need to pass some laws targeted at just the prison uh, or, or like prison reform for that matter, how um, sort of that limited scope uh, sort of constrains our thinking and we need sort of a more holistic view. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know if that made sense, but. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. And I, I think, <clears throat> um, I think, you know, a lot of people, do a really good job of talking about 
you know, the limitations of uh, legislation or, or policy change or tweaks to how prisons and jails are run, for instance. And I, I would agree, I think that's not enough. And I also think that's part of what we have to use. We have to use mm-hmm. all of the tools at our disposal because I think sometimes the opposite happens too, right, where people are like, that's not pure enough for me. You know, sure. like I can't mm-hmm. deal with any elected official because, you Definitely. know, any interaction whatsoever with the state is anathema to the to the politics of abolition. And I I disagree with that. You know, I, I think we need <clears throat> to put our pickaxes at every single piece of the prison industrial complex that we can, um, which is, you know, some of that is legislation. So, for instance, you know, we're seeing right now in the state of California really amazing work being done by the California Coalition for Women Prisoners mm-hmm. that is, um, you know, chipping away at the at life without the possibility of parole and has been um, getting commutations for people who are serving these, like, dead-end sentences, right, um, that are essentially death sentences without execution. Um, and so that work to get these people out of cages who thought they would never, ever see the light of day again outside of a prison yard is tremendous and steals resources from the prison system, and that is crucial. We need to steal all of the resources from the prison system we can, whether that is their funding, that is the land on which prisons and jails are built, whether that are the human beings that are held there. Um, So I think that stuff is is really important. I think we need to imagine um, some of the cultural transformations, too, around how we are with each other or what we understand as acceptable or normalized in our popular culture, for instance, right? So the idea of the kind of normalization of prison in our landscape and popular culture, I find really, really troubling from, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of the stereotypes about who's there. You can turn on the TV any night of the week and hear some egregious prison rape joke as if that's just like a real, you know, standard thing that happens in our culture. You can um, see the same thing around policing or surveillance, right? The normalization of those things that then do, I think, translate in some ways the kind of um, consistency of the, um, how to say, of those images and of, of, of those ideas, I do think worms its way into our head a little bit and then does have an impact on how normal we think those things are in our real life when we see them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, like a culture, a transformation of our culture that sees these things as, as aberrant as they actually should be in our in our landscapes would be really, really helpful. And when we see, um, you know, cultural things that do that, I think those are really, really important. Um, and I think we need to also stop romanticizing alternatives. There's like a fetishization at this point. I think about like, well, we'll just build alternatives. And it's like, one, alternatives to what? Like, what are you actually trying to do? Mm-hmm. Two, what kinds of, you know, structures or institutions or practices are you developing that actually are different from, you know, just a parallel to what mm-hmm. exists right now? Mm-hmm. And three, I think this, there's still a role for the state, right? So I think the state still has a role in caring 
for the people of, of, you know, our country, our state, our city, wherever we are, whatever scale of the state we're talking about, right? And so I think, you know, when we're talking about transformation, we also have to think about transforming the priorities that are used to govern us. And, mm-hmm. and so some of that might be in transforming legislation, but we're seeing that some places also around transforming fiscal priorities. So, you know, if you take, you know, in Los Angeles Youth Justice Coalition for years now has been demanding 1% of the policing budget for the city and county of Los Angeles, right, which is millions of dollars, but still at 1%. Mm-hmm. And they won't come up off it, and they keep acting like it's the most ridiculous request. But it's not because what they want is a tiny, minuscule portion of what's used to police and contain and control young people to actually give them after-school programming and job training and counselors Mm -hmm. and, you know, the vast kind of things that could happen with even 1% of what gets used to police and imprison young people. Um, And so I think those kind of transformations around kind of where we put our resources, where we put our emphases, you know, why do we keep cutting um, parks and libraries and those kind of things at the same time that we're allowing police departments to buy new cruisers or drones or helicopters or wherever the hell they're buying, right? That, I think, is part of this whole um, dynamic as well. So I feel like I'm going all over the place and maybe not answering your question. No, and good. well beyond my three minutes at this point. But, um, <laughs> You're fine. You but I don't. I don't. I don't know if that's where you were headed, Brian. But that's where I wound up. No, no I appreciate great. that. That was great. That was great. Well, I um, want to respect your time. I know you're super busy, um, but I want to thank you for you know spending time with us today and sharing uh, so much wisdom and you know just yourself, uh, your energy, your labor um, with us today on, on the podcast. Yeah. Any, uh, final thoughts, anything else you'd like to, you know, touch on and, um, maybe let people know where they can find your work. Sure. Um, yeah, I think the, you know, whatever, whatever parting shot I might have in me is just repetition of what I've been saying, which is, you know, we have to build the world we want. We cannot wait. Nobody else is going to make it for us. So if we want the abolition of the prison industrial complex to, you know, be transformed in our lifetime, we have to create the conditions for that to be possible, which means we have to intervene in situations of harm, which means we have to give them, we have to give interventions that other people are making legitimacy and space. We have to delegitimate the use of the prison industrial complex. And we have to figure out how to, um, you know, pressure um the the things that govern us into being what we want we need to push for self-determination in those situations and i i am not for like you know let's just all build a victory garden and do pickling in our communal houses and that's going to be you know that's going to achieve the the elimination of the use of imprisonment and policing i don't i don't really believe in like you know I do my everyday practice at home and that's going to, you know, transform the prison industrial complex. I think Mm -hmm. we have to be real about the people and policies and institutions and everything that, you know, makes that system up and we need to go for them and we need to do that in in a real way. We need to take these targets head on 
I, I don't know that it's about kind of perfecting our individual selves. I think yeah. we really need to take those targets head on and we need to make the world that we want. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate you saying that. We were laughing because, uh, you know, or at least I was laughing because before you jumped on the call, we were actually just having a similar conversation. <laughs> our own clothes, our shoes, you know, like canning and things like that. Like, you know, so it's just so funny that that's where we've come full circle, even, you know, <laughs> you didn't realize it. <laughs> really, I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it.